not bad. If you have a Bible you want to open up, Acts chapter 28. This is our last week working through the book of Acts. Um, If you've been reading along with us, you will have read the entire book over the last 12 weeks. If you've not been taking part in the reading plan, but you've been here on Sundays, we've gone in and out of some of the high points in the narrative that you get in the book of Acts. And we were kind of slow at the beginning, and then as we've worked our way through the book, things have accelerated. And over the last few weeks, we've moved really quickly through the last 13, 14 chapters of the book of Acts. And the reason for that is because at the end of the book of Acts, you start to get very brief sort of glimpses into what's happening in this, these various cities where Paul is doing ministry. What, what happens within the church, maybe what happens, some, something that happens within the city there, and he's moving from place to place to place. And then you get to chapter 28, and the narrative just kind of ends. Doesn't feel like there's a great, con- there's like a ton of conclusion or resolution to what's happening. It's almost as if it just like fizzles out to an end. Here in the Midwest, when we talk about spring, particularly the month of March, we say that March comes in like a lion and it goes out like a lamb. That's a little bit how the book of Acts is set up. It comes in with all of this like frenetic kind of energy, divine activity taking place, the Holy Spirit or Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit comes and there's a bunch happening and there's explosive growth in Jerusalem. And then it just sort of ends. Like if you were reading a novel or you were watching a movie, you would think surely a chapter or a scene has been cut off at the end because this can't just be how it sort of stops. That's where we are today. And what I want to do is we're actually going to flip back to Acts chapter one, kind of remind ourselves where we began and then read just the last 14 verses in the book of Acts. And as we read those, we're going to step back and make some observations for our day today. So if you want to, if you got a bookmark or you just kind of want to put your finger in Acts chapter 28 and flip back to the very beginning of the book. This is just to remind ourselves, how is it that this narrative begins? We're told this in verse 4, Acts chapter 1. While he, that's Jesus, was with them... He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going. Flip to chapter two. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We started in Acts 
where Luke, the gospel, left off. Luke gives you this long portrayal of Jesus as the king who has come to inaugurate his kingdom here on earth. And the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts actually overlap with the ascension. And so the king ascends, but the kingdom marches forward. The king ascends, but the spirit comes to empower. The king ascends, but his people carry forward his ministry and mission and message. And it's the Holy Spirit's role then to magnify the son, which he begins to do immediately. And since that moment that the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 to where we are, a bunch has happened. There's explosive growth in the church uh, in like the first nine chapters of the book of Acts. That happens through the ministry of a guy named Peter. The Holy Spirit is working through him. Stephen, one of the early followers of Jesus, is martyred. And when he's martyred, you get introduced to a man named Saul who's standing there and giving his approval to the whole thing. And then a couple chapters later, Saul has an interaction with Jesus on a road to Damascus where he's headed to persecute other believers, other followers of Jesus. And it's in that interaction that Saul is saved, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, Saul, Paul at that point, is sent out into ministry alongside a guy named Barnabas. They do a journey, a missionary trip together around the area of the Mediterranean. Then they split ways, and Paul launches into a couple of other missionary journeys. He finally ends by arriving in Rome. And what Jesus said at the Ascension, that this group of people, these early followers of Jesus, would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When Paul arrives in Rome... That's kind of the signaling of they've made it to the ends of the earth. Like that's the big central kind of hub city in the world at their time. In fact, in ancient literature, Rome is referred to as the great city. It'd be like New York City today. It's the center of economic and political and cultural life at the time. When we think as Christians a couple thousand years later, when we read scripture, and we sort of situate ourselves within the story of the Bible, we kind of think that Jerusalem is like, that's the place. Not in the first century. Jerusalem was like a fringe city, way out, not really at the center of what's happening within the Roman Empire. Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien in their book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, describe it this way. The events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, so important for the Jews and Christians at the time, were marginal events in a nothing town on the edge of an empire with more important matters to consider. If we fail to recognize this, we can fail to recognize just how remarkable the rapid growth of the early church really was. For the first couple of centuries, Roman writers often referred to Christians as Galileans, indicating how nominal and provincial, provincial they considered the early followers of Jesus to be. The gospel getting to Rome is a really big deal. It's one of the seminal events in Christianity's history. In fact, if you had talked to a first century individual, not even a Christian, just a first century individual, and you told them, hey, in like 500 years, Rome is going to cease to exist and Christianity will be spreading all over the world, they would laugh you out of the room. Like, what are you talking about? Like, Rome that's obsessed with, like, empire building and world domination, that thing's going to cease to exist and the Galileans are going to have spread their thing all the way around the globe? That would have been thought to be completely impossible. 
And yet that's what happens. And Acts gives you the narrative account of the Holy Spirit's work to begin that kind of movement in the world at this time. And if you've read along with us in the Gospel of Acts, you know that Paul gets to Rome in a very curious way. It's as a prisoner. He arrives in chains carrying the gospel into the world's great city at the time. In fact, he had been declared innocent in multiple trials along the way, and each time he was declared innocent, he appealed to a higher authority. That would be like you calling the cable company because the bill's wrong, and you get like the first customer service person, and they say, hey, no problem, we'll fix your bill, and you say, I want to talk to your manager. They send you to the manager, and the manager, after a couple minutes, says, hey, no problem, we'll fix your bill, and you say, I want your manager all the way up until you can talk to like the CEO or something like that. That's what Paul wants, an audience with Caesar. That's what he's after. And even though he's declared innocent a few times, he keeps appealing to a higher authority. And so in Acts chapter 28, Paul finally arrives in Rome. And then we're told this beginning Acts 28 verse 17. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. After they examined me, they wanted to release me, since there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no charge to bring against my people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Then they said to him, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we want to hear what your views are, since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. After arranging a day with them, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. Disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding. And you will always be looking but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We're gonna work our way through that last section in the book of Acts. We're going to draw some observations. The main point this morning is that the Holy Spirit's mission in and through the church is unchanging. And so as we see the way that the book of Acts ends, what are some observations we can make about the Holy Spirit's work today? Still carrying forward the Holy Spirit's role of magnifying Jesus and making the gospel known to the ends of the earth. Paul's under a loose sort of house arrest. When we think about Paul in prison, what's natural for us is to have an image jump to mind of a person in like an institutional prison today. They're in a particular place 
in a cell behind bars. But what Paul experienced when he was in prison was a form of house arrest. He can have visitors. He's allowed to rent a house to live in. And at various points, he has former partners in ministry that come and visit him and even bring him things. But he's chained to a guard around the clock. And so in four-hour stints, all day, every day, for a couple of years, we're told, a different person is chained to Paul's wrist. The idea is that though the house arrest is fairly relaxed and Rome does not think Paul is like a threat to them, they still don't want him to escape or get away somehow. And it's a lot harder to do that if you've got someone else chained to the other side of your, of your arm. It's during this time that Paul writes four of his epistles or letters. He writes the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Philippians, and he writes the letter of Philemon. In the letter to Philippians, he actually makes reference to his imprisonment. He said, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So these individuals who are rotating through on the other end of the chain that's on his wrist probably know annoyingly well that this guy's here because of the gospel. He's here to share the message of Jesus. Six different people every single day rotating through. Paul says, everybody knows. I'm in chains for the gospel. It's while he's under house arrest that Acts 28 records two meetings that take place in the home where Paul is living. The first half of our passage records the first one. The second half of our passage records the second meeting. So try to accurately picture the scene. Here's a guy who's in a small home that he's paying for so that he can be prisoner inside it. He's got someone chained to him around the clock and he calls for the leaders of Jewish synagogues there in Rome to come and have a conversation with him. He's a physical prisoner. But this is the same man who at other places in his writing and in other epistles will use this metaphor that he is a slave or a prisoner to Christ. So he's physically chained up by the empire, but he says that he's metaphorically or spiritually enslaved or prisoner to Christ. He's compelled by the gospel, constrained by it, held captive to it. He calls this group of religious leaders to him and he says, for this reason I have asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. For the hope of Israel Jesus, the Messiah, was the fulfillment of a covenant promise that God made with a specific people for all people. In the book of Genesis, God makes a specific covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants that will be for all the nations, that through Abraham's descendants, all the nations will be blessed. Promise to a people for all people. Paul never lost sight of that. He's an apostle to the Gentiles, but he never loses focus of God's special covenant love and promise to the descendants of Abraham. In fact, it was Paul who in Romans chapter 9 said that he would willingly be accursed and cut off from Christ if only his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to know the gospel. It's Paul who in Romans chapter 11 uses this image of like a tree that God has planted. That tree is Israel, and it's growing up, and there's this window of Gentile salvation, and as Gentiles are saved, they're grafted into the tree, Israel, that God has made a promise to. The Gentiles can be saved, but God will ultimately be faithful to his covenant people. 
Paul says about his ministry to the Gentiles that his hope is to magnify that ministry and enlarge it in such a way that Jewish men and women are saved. This is where our understanding of the Old Testament, even as we read the New Testament, is so crucial. God chose a people, Israel. He gave the law to a people, Israel. He promised that a Messiah or a Savior would come from a people, Israel. Each of those and every promise in the Old Testament has this view toward the nations, but what is the Holy Spirit doing in redemptive history? What is God doing in redemptive history? He's fulfilling all the promises, each and every one of them. He's moving everything toward the coming of Jesus, and he's moving everything toward the second coming of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been and will always be magnifying the Son according to the will of the Father. That's how the Trinity works. The Spirit magnifies the Son according to the will of the Father, and God is glorified in all of it. Paul keeps that squarely in view. Jew, Gentile, all nations. So he calls these people together. He says, it's for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they're like super confused. Like we haven't received any letters about you from Judea or Jerusalem. No one has come and reported anything or spoken anything evil about you. Why are you here in chains? Like what are you doing here, Paul? But we want to hear what your views are since we know that people everywhere are speaking against this sect. That's verse 22. Did you catch why these Jewish leaders are curious about Paul's message? It's not because everyone thought so highly of the church and Christians that they wanted to know what was going on. It's not because the church is so powerful or influential or has such freedom or whatever that they want to get in on the ground floor of what's going on. No, they say, we're curious to hear from you because everyone speaks against you and your sect everywhere. And we understand that you can tell us what's going on. The stuff that comes out of your mouth riles people up. Tell us about it. Observation number one. The reputation of the church matters. But the mission is the message, not the reputation. The message, or the reputation of the church matters, but the mission is the message, not the reputation. Look, I want our community to think highly of this church I want those who are unsaved all across our country and unreached all around the globe to think highly of the capital C church. The work that we do, the way that we conduct ourselves, how we proclaim and portray who Jesus is. But what I really, really want is for our community to fall in love with Jesus. Now, that has two sides. First, we shouldn't be so concerned about the image or reputation of the church that we shy away from its mission and its message. We shouldn't be so concerned about the image or the reputation of the church that we stop trying to magnify Jesus and stop trying to proclaim that there's one name under heaven by which humanity must be saved. That name is Jesus. But on the other hand, we shouldn't care so little about the reputation of the church that we resort to the world's tactics in our portrayal of that message. 
This is a real life challenge in our current day cultural circumstances. If people don't like the church because of the message, that's one thing. But if people don't like the church because we're a bunch of jerks, that's another thing. If people like the church because we refuse to stand for anything or are overly conciliatory on things and issues where there's biblical clarity, that's a problem. It's most important that people fall in love with Jesus. It's more important that they fall in love with Jesus than it is that they fall in love with the church. Look, it's possible for those outside of the church to admire the church and think very little of Jesus. We should not be okay with that. Our goal should not be that people admire the work that we do in the community or the things that we do in the world so much and they say, oh, the church is a great place. I care nothing about Jesus, but the church is kind of cool. That should grieve us. That comes up short of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. It comes up short of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through the collected people of God. And yet, on the other side, we also have to understand that it's not possible for people outside the church to love the church without first falling in love with Jesus. To some degree, the world is always going to think that the church is a little bit problematic and runs a little bit against the grain. And that probably will not ever change fully and completely unless people fall in love with Jesus and then learn to love the church. If you've been around the church very long, you understand that it's not always the most lovable place. The church, any local expression or the big capital C church, is a collection of broken people trying to figure out how it is that we walk in the light and the life and the love of Jesus. And sometimes that is not pretty and it's not smooth and it's tumultuous and full of bumps. But if people fall in love with the king, Jesus, then they'll start to figure out how to fall in love with the collection of his people. The reputation of the church matters, but the mission of the church is the message, not its reputation. The Son will build his church through the Spirit to the glory of the Father, and sometimes that will happen because the church flourishes and does good and is highly esteemed by those outside of it. That's the case early on in the book of Acts, when the church is growing rapidly in Jerusalem. The text tells us that they experienced the favor of all the people. That's wonderful. It doesn't last long. Then followers of Jesus are being thrown into jail or they're being killed like Stephen and the church is becoming this problematic entity. And so sometimes the son will build the church through the spirit to the glory of the father in places where the church is reviled and hated. The Holy Spirit is not bound by the constraints on either side of that. For those of us inside the church, we should stay focused on what is central, that our mission is the message, the message of Jesus Christ to all people as God collects and redeems people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. Verse 23, after arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging, 
From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. We're not told exactly how long, but sometime later, there's a second meeting that takes place with Paul. Sounds like they prearranged it. It probably wasn't that long because I don't think it's too hard to get on a prisoner's calendar. But a large group of these Jewish come back and they want to hear from Paul. And what does he do? We're told that he tried to persuade them about Jesus. That from dawn to dusk, he expounded the scriptures and testified about the kingdom of God. He used the whole of scripture, the law of Moses and the prophets. Observation number two, the mission of the church is worthy of the church's energy and effort. Paul's using the full of scripture. He's willing to take his time and be thorough. Notice that Luke doesn't say, They showed up at 8 a.m., Paul gave him a 30-second elevator pitch and then said, do you want to put your faith in Jesus? It says from dawn to dusk, he's persuading them. The sense of that word is that like he's actively trying to convince them of the truths of Scripture that they might be saved. He's willing to be patient, to work through the Old Testament, be passionate about the portrayal of Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture and the great need of humanity. The message and the mission of the church, it's worthy of our energy. It's worthy of our effort. Life as a follower of Jesus is one of an urgent sort of patience. That sounds contradictory, but let me explain what I mean. Part of following Jesus is allowing the Holy Spirit to create an appropriate gospel urgency within us, whereby we would understand that Jesus could return at any moment or any one of us could take our final breath and that there are lost, unsaved people in our own communities and the world over. And there's an urgency to share with them the truth of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And yet, part of following Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to work inside of us is allowing a persistent kind of patience to develop inside of us. I'll I'll take from dawn to dusk to explain the scriptures to you if that's how long you're willing to sit and listen. Or let me push it a little bit further. If you entered into a friendship with someone here in our community and it took you 10 years to walk through the scriptures, beginning to end. Look, you're gonna sit down with somebody and biblical literacy is really low within the church, so extrapolate that to outside the church. You're not sitting down with a religious leader who has this incredible framework, Jewish framework for all of the Old Testament. You'd be sitting down with someone who maybe knows the gist of a couple Bible stories. And so you said, you know what, for as long as it takes, we'll work through this book beginning to end. And that took you 10 years. Then it took them five years to get to a place where they were ready to make some decision about whether or not they actually felt like they needed Jesus Christ as Savior. My question for you is, would you be willing to stick with them for 15 years? Never give up. Never cash out. Care about their soul enough with a gospel urgency that you'd keep showing up and yet have a persistent patience that says, and I will keep showing up no matter how long they drag this thing out. The message of the gospel is worth our energy. It's worth our effort. The Holy Spirit 
has a mission to glorify and magnify Jesus in and through the church, and that mission isn't changing. And the same urgent patience that Paul has ought to characterize us today. Verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding. You will always be looking but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul quotes from a fairly lengthy passage in Isaiah chapter 6. That's right at the start of Isaiah's ministry where God tells Isaiah to go to the people that he's prophesying to right off the start and say, look, you're going to listen but never understand. You're going to look but never perceive. You're going to have hearts that are calloused and ears that are closed and eyes that are shut. And if any of that would change, you'd turn to the Lord and he would save you. And then you get like 50 chapters in the book of Isaiah where he's passionately giving them these prophecies and they're doing exactly that. Not understanding, not perceiving, calloused hearts, closed eyes, shut ears. Paul pulls from that he looks at this group of religious leaders, Jewish leaders who are gathered there among them, and he says, you're just like those folks. The Holy Spirit was right. You don't understand. You don't get it. Observation number three. The words of Scripture will always hold true. Every promise will be fulfilled. Every warning will show itself to have been both prescient and needed. Every comfort will be one that we can cling to. This book, the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it foretold the Messiah and he came just as the way the Holy Spirit said that he would. This book tells us how to live in light of him, tells us that he will come back. And in pursuit of the mission of the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus, he's given us a book, inspired a book, that tells us everything that we need to know about how to live and how to submit and how to obey and how to engage in the mission. If we're to be people used mightily by the Holy Spirit as he does the work of accomplishing his mission, we would be wise to read and obey the book. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts that are easy in our culture to read and obey, all of it. Because when we get on the other side, into glory. And we can see everything clearly without flesh and sin-stained eyes. There's only going to be one statement. He was right. He was right about it all. He was right about the warnings. He was right about the depth of my sin. He was right about who Jesus is. He was right about him coming back. He was right. We would be wise to read and obey the book. In the final two verses, in the way that the book of Acts closes, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul spends two years 
under house arrest in Rome. It kind of makes it sound like he just rented a house and decided to hang out after he was declared innocent. That's not what happened. He spent two years under house arrest in this home that he was paying for so that he could be under house arrest. He finally gets released, and we actually don't know a ton about what happened. Church tradition holds that he ended up in Spain, that he was able to preach the gospel there. He's then arrested at another time. And to the best of our knowledge, both Paul and Peter were killed under the reign of Emperor Nero. Peter was crucified, and he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy of dying in the same way that Jesus did. Paul is beheaded because as a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. So he's killed a different way. While he's under house arrest, what does he do? He said he welcomes all who visited him. He proclaims the kingdom of God. He teaches about Jesus Christ. He's got boldness. Nothing is hindering him. He allows the Holy Spirit to use him and his circumstances to magnify Jesus right there where he is, even if that's not where he wants to be. So observation number last. God intends to use his people in the exact places he puts his people. You may not like where you are in life right now. The Holy Spirit wants to magnify Jesus right in that spot. You may not love the season of life you're in right now. You may have a whole list of like 30 different things that you wish were different about the current season or circumstances that surround your life. Maybe it was less painful. Maybe it was a little bit easier. Maybe there'd be a little bit more money, whatever the case might be. But the Holy Spirit wants to magnify Jesus through you in that season right now. You may be really excited about the next season in life. You're a high school student and you can't wait for college. You're a college student and you can't wait to get a job. Wait a little longer. You're in a job or a career and you can't wait for the new boss or the changes that are going to take place or the promotion or whatever the case might be. The Holy Spirit isn't waiting for that next season of life to start magnifying Jesus through you. He wants to do it now. He's not wasting any of your seasons or any of your circumstances. Why do we have the incredibly encouraging letter of Philippians? Because Paul allowed the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus while he was sitting under house arrest. Why do we have the theologically rich letter to the Ephesians? Because Paul allowed the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus while he was under house arrest. Why is it that we've got the Christ-exalting words of Colossians? Because Paul allowed the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus while he was under house arrest. I have to believe that every day for 730 days, Paul thought, I would love to not have this dude chained to my hand. But that's not gonna stop me from glorifying Jesus. It's not going to stop me from submitting myself to the Holy Spirit and how he wants to magnify Jesus in and through my circumstances. That mission, it's not changing. What the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through the church is never going to shift. What we see the Holy Spirit doing to magnify Jesus in the book of Acts, that's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through the church today. If we approach Acts primarily as like a book that kind of gives us all the ins and outs of the Holy Spirit, I think we can bog ourselves down into secondary issues. 
How does the Holy Spirit work? What did he used to do? What does he still do? Those are questions that are fine to try to answer, but I think we do ourselves the largest service if we zoom out and see the big picture that Acts gives us this incredible snapshot of the Holy Spirit magnifying the Son according to the will of the Father, all for the glory of God. And that's the same thing that's happening today. The Holy Spirit's mission in and through the church is unchanging. And the book of Acts ends the way it does because even though Luke's time with Paul is over, the Holy Spirit's work is not. The book of Acts was never predominantly about Paul anyway. It wasn't predominantly about Peter. It wasn't predominantly about the early church or the early followers of Jesus. The book is predominantly about the work of the Holy Spirit in carrying forward the ministry and mission and message of Jesus to the nations. If you're gonna pass out communion, will you come grab these and start the trays going around the room? If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take communion with us, even if LCF's not your, what you would call your church home. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus can take communion with us this morning. If you've not received God's grace for your salvation, it's okay to just let the tray pass by. I asked two questions in the first sermon of this series. There are two questions that I think are worth asking again as we conclude our time in the book of Acts. The first question is this. Is Jesus at the center of our lives? Not your job, not your kids, not your spouse or your pursuit of a spouse, not a hobby, not your kids' hobby, not an interest or an activity, not your bank account or your comfort or your status, not your platform or your social calendar, not your work to-dos or your vacation schedule, not politics or local, national, or global news. Is Jesus the center? Not this church, not a Christian cause, not like Christian subculture, not a ministry or an initiative. Is Jesus at the center of our lives? You see, when we think about church in America, we typically think of an event. Church is a thing I go to. Maybe we think about it as a place, like church is the building, but for most of us, church is a, it's like an hour block. It's an hour and 15 minutes here on Sunday morning. And we like calendar that so long as there's not a better offer that pops up before Sunday morning. And then we'll go to church, spectate, maybe participate if the band plays the songs I like. I'll mutter a few words here and there. And then I leave. It's possible that like I take part in a program or something later in the week, but I typically engage with that the same way I would engage with Sunday morning. It's an event. It's a thing that I go to. The book of Acts does not present that. The book of Acts presents the church as a collection of people who have made Jesus the anchor in their lives. There was no other reason to follow Jesus in the early days of the church. It wasn't culturally accepted. It wasn't cool. There was no status that came with it. In fact, you might get yourself locked up or killed. But if this man Jesus is who he says he is, he actually died on the cross. And that's worth giving my life to. 
And then I become part of the church. It's not an event I go to. It's a thing I'm a part of. It's like this living organism now that I get to be. And I live my life proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus Christ that the nations might be saved. So the question is whether or not that Jesus is central. The powerful coming king of the gospels. The born, lived, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, ruling, reigning, empowering Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus who is Savior. The Jesus who by the power of the Holy Spirit continues to do and to teach in the world today. The Jesus who rules and reigns, who dwells with you by the Spirit who's advancing his kingdom and who will come again. That Jesus... Is he central to our lives? Or is he like this thing on the periphery? Like if your life were a pie or a pizza or something, is Jesus like one slice of the pie? Or is Jesus the whole pie and everything else fits inside? When we take communion, we get a chance to sort of recenter our hearts on that question because we hold in our hands visible reminders of just what Jesus did. Like if, if his body wasn't put up on the cross and his blood wasn't spilt, then yeah, he might just be somebody that's kind of worth admiring or he might be someone that you could put on your calendar for an hour and go learn about and then try and go and, and be like him. But if, if this actually happened to him and his body was nailed to a cross that we deserve because of our sin and his blood was spilled and now washes us clean, then that is worth reorienting our lives around, not just shifting our Sunday morning schedule. And so the question is, is he central? Because brothers and sisters, this, this is the body of Christ. The physical, tangible, edible, mostly, reminder that Jesus Christ went to the cross that you and I deserve to go to, that he bore the punishment that our sin deserves in our place and he did it willingly. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And this is the blood of Christ poured out washes us clean of our sin, makes us white as snow. This is the blood of the lamb that's being worshiped in the throne room of heaven right now and will be for all of eternity. This is the blood that makes it so that when I stand before the Lord in my moment of judgment, I'm covered in Christ's righteousness instead of marked by my own sin. The blood of Christ. Drink in remembrance of him. And that leads to the second question. As a result of Jesus being the center of our lives, are we living as faith-filled, obedient followers of Jesus? Obedient followers of Jesus whose lives orbit around the king, who live with both feet planted firmly in his kingdom, who are empowered by the spirit to display and proclaim the king and his kingdom all the days of our lives, regardless of our circumstances. 
when something happens in our lives or in the world, is our first question, what does the kingdom of God look like in response to that? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of that? What does it look like to bring the realities of the kingdom of God to bear on this thing and all of its complexity and all of its brokenness and in all of its difficulty? That kind of living requires the Spirit working among us, flowing through us, filling us, refreshing us, strengthening us, empowering us, convicting us, challenging us, emboldening us. So if we're going to be the church, not just a church, but the church, with Jesus at the center of our lives, living as faith-filled, obedient followers of him, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. And so I want to close this series by doing something very simple. And that's praying for the Spirit to fall on us and fill us afresh. To the fullness of whatever measure it is that he has. That we as one little sliver of the global church might be used by the Holy Spirit in his unchanging mission to exalt Christ to the ends of the earth. Will you pray with me? God, we pray that your spirit would fill us. God, would your spirit fall upon this church and these individuals in a fresh and powerful way. Holy Spirit, fill us that we might fall ever more deeply in love with Christ. Fill us that we might understand his presence in tangible and experiential ways. Fill us, Lord, that his love might burst through every spot of brokenness in our lives. God, fill us so that his gifts might pour out of your church, God, to your glory, Lord. Fill us that we might see him on the pages of scripture, God. Fill us that we would be obedient followers. Fill us, Lord, that we would boldly proclaim the truths of the gospel. Fill us that we might be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. God, fill us with a courage that stands in the face of those who might be opposed to you. Fill us with a boldness that would be willing to absorb the derision of the world because of the joy of following Jesus. God, would your spirit fill. God, in fresh in powerful ways. Would your spirit overflow in this local church that Jesus might be glorified, that the lost might come to know Jesus, that the unreached would hear the gospel, that the outcast would be welcomed in, that the marginalized would be loved and cared for, God, that those who have needs would have needs met. God, would you fill this church with your spirit? And as you fill us, Lord, would you humble us? Humble us that we might be obedient. Humble us that we would serve God. Humble us so that every last ounce of the glory that comes from your work in our lives would go to you and not to ourselves. 
fill us afresh. Move powerfully. Magnify Jesus in our midst, we pray in his matchless name. Amen.